If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 56 verse 9 through 57 verse 21. That might sound like a lot of verses. In some ways it is. It's basically chapter 57 plus the final four verses, I believe, of chapter 56. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the inside cover of the bulletin has a copy of our passage. You can find it a couple other places as well. <clears throat> with that, let's get to our reading of God's word. Here now, the reading of God's holy, <clears throat> excuse me, holy and errant and inspired word. Isaiah 56, verse 9. <clears throat> All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear? <clears throat> so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who's inhabit, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. 
I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Our loving heavenly father, you are good and all that you do is good. Give us ears to hear your good word to us this morning. Help us to hear as we hear your word. Help us to hear and see our own sin, but also to see our great Savior. We ask it in his great name. Amen. Exalted, poetic prophecy like Isaiah. It demands the most exquisite, most profound illustrations that mortal man can summon. But today we're going to have to settle for a quote from the movie Miss Congeniality. I am serious, but stay with me, because if you do, you might get some St. Augustine as well. Not necessarily my favorite movie, in case you're wondering, but there's a scene in that iconic rom-com chick flick from the year 2000 where they, they parody beauty pageant contestants. And so the host is asking, what is the one most important thing that our society needs? And so four consecutive contestants give the same two-word reply, world peace. And then Sandra Bullock, who is an undercover cop posing as a contestant, she answers, what, what does our society need? She goes, that would be harsher punishments for parole violators, Stan. And after seven seconds of awkward silence, she says, and world peace. We laugh because it's funny, because it's such a predictable cliche. But is it wrong? Don't we need world peace? Don't we need peace and shalom and wholeness? Don't we need freedom from conflict and so much more? Don't we need all the wrongs to be righted? Because that's what you hear and see in Isaiah. You see mankind looking for love and peace in all the wrong places. For example, you see the wicked, the final two verses that we read, they search for peace through freedom from all restraints. You see the idolaters, Verses 3 through 13 of 57, they search for peace through a disciplined devotion to false gods. Then there's the indulgent, chapter 56, verses 11 and 12. They search for peace through parties, through pleasure. There's the escapists, verses 9 and 11 of 56. They search for peace through blissful ignorance, a carefree life. And who finds it? Who finds peace? Only those who, by God's grace, walk in uprightness. Those who also, chapter 57, verse 15 says, lower themselves through contrition, who are brokenhearted over their sin. That's who God heals. That's who gets God's peace. We're all searching for it. As Augustine said, I quote it fairly often, our hearts are restless. We're searching for rest and peace. And we're doomed to restlessness until we find our rest in thee and God alone. Israel's problem, they were searching for the right thing in the wrong places. They had the wrong leaders 
who led them further in the sin so that they worshiped the wrong gods. And then the only one who could make it right was the writer of all wrongs. Those are our three points this morning. Let's start with the wrong leaders, the wrong leaders. Chapter 56, verses 9 through 12. Why were they wrong? Not because of a coup d'etat or something like that. No, they were wrong because they were ungodly. They were selfish. They were bad leaders. They were not the kind of leaders that Israel needed. They were just wrong in seemingly every way. Now we need to pause because some of you might be confused. Isaiah 1 through 39 is known as the book of judgment. And then Isaiah 40 through 66 is known as the book of comfort. So why all this bad news in the book of comfort? Because God, as God is building to his crescendo, he will not let his people forget who they are and what they need to be saved from. They need to be saved from sin and from themselves. They can never forget that. And in these final chapters, he's building upon certain themes. For example, if you look at chapters 40 through 48, you'll see the restoration and deliverance of Israel. In other words, Babylon is not going to win. The ones who defeated them, not in the end, they'll be delivered. Then you see the servant in chapters 49 through 55, God's greater deliverance. Oh, there is one who will come, who will suffer to deliver his unworthy people. But then you also see the conqueror. In chapters 56 through 66, the section we're currently in, you see God's final deliverance. A reminder that one day every knee will bow. The victory one day, it will not simply be future anymore. No, one day it will be here. It will be final. But it only comes after suffering. And it only comes to a people who know they're unworthy, who know their own tendency to wander. And you know, with leaders like these, it'd be hard not to wander from God's commands, right? Starting in Isaiah 56, verse 9, Isaiah calls the leaders beasts who devour. In fact, instead of being watchmen and shepherds, proper leaders who defend God's people, his sheep, what are they? They're blind, no knowledge. They're, they're dumb or silent. They can't talk. They can't bark. My dog barks more than I care for. He's 20 pounds. He thinks he's a guard dog. But you know, it could be worse. He could be silent like these, like these no good guard dogs, these worthless watchmen. They, they also dream as they sleep, it says. They're, they're escaping reality instead of facing it, instead of dealing with it. But they also, they like to eat. Verse 11 says, well, they eat a lot. They have mighty appetites, but they don't care for others, they, they don't know anything. They don't know how to do anything, it seems, but feed themselves. Do you want leaders like these? Or like this, chapter 56, verse 12. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Echoes of Isaiah 22 there. But these aren't shepherds. They're wayward sheep. There's echoes of Isaiah 53, 5 as well. They're escaping reality, living for the next party, for more wine, for more strong drinks so they can grow comfortably numbed. What kind of leaders, what kind of watchmen are these? They have no knowledge, no sight. They give no warning. No good guard dogs. Worthless watchmen. And maybe worst of all, as you see in that final verse there, they have no shame no inhibitions, no self-denial. 
Is this how to obtain the peace that we all seek by oblivion or ignorance or escapism, escaping reality, not knowing what's going on? Is it by indulging our appetites, whether it's food or drink or any one of God's good things? You see, not all appetites are good. Not all appetites need to be quenched. Sometimes we're hungry for the wrong thing, and sometimes we're too hungry. We want a good thing too much. We don't trust that God can make us content in plenty or in need. Is that how we find peace in this life? A blissful ignorance of reality of life's problems, our problems, our sin? Is it by indulging our appetites? Peace through pleasure, through plentiful consumption. One dollar more, one drink more, one award more, one bit of power and control. Just one more, just a little more. You can still find leaders in society that'll tell you that's the answer. Maybe they claim to be Christians, maybe not. I shared this quote during Advent from Max Dupree. Leaders don't inflict pain, they bear pain. So I ask you, the leaders you're following, whoever they are, are they willing to bear pain for you? Do they remind you of the one who bore our pain in our punishment, in our poverty? If not, it may be time to follow new leaders. But Israel as a whole, she didn't have that much self-awareness. So she followed her leaders. She followed them downward into further sin, more debased, more entangling, more ensnaring, enslaving sins. In short, they began to worship the wrong gods. And that's our next point. The wrong gods, chapter 57, verses 1 through 13. And yes, I meant to capitalize it that way in the bulletin because we're not talking about the living and true capital G God. Now, are we? No. The first two verses actually talk here about the righteous and the strange comfort they have. Commentators speculate that what's going on in this section, it fits the reign of King Manasseh, an evil king. Time when many, especially many righteous, were killed. But God is saying this is actually a gracious thing. Sparing the righteous who immediately would enter God's peace and blessedness. It's sparing them from a calamitous, tumultuous time on earth. As Paul says, to die is gain. And the way the text bounces back and forth between singular and plural, it shows you that this promise, it applies to all of God's people, all and every and each one who truly trusts in Christ amidst the chaos of the world. But after that brief portrait, we go back to reality. We shift gears. I like Bruce's illustration. I drove a stick shift for a good 20, 25 years there. But nonetheless, we go back to reality. Because remember, right before this passage, there's this blessed holy mountain of Israel, a vision of the future of what God would do. But it was distant. Distant for us because we looked at Isaiah 56 last about two months ago, and it's distant for Israel because the present day looked nothing like that. Starting in verse 3, the commentator J.A. Moitier, he calls the section the prostitute and her family. You'll notice Isaiah also mentions the word sorcery because adultery and idolatry so often go together in the Old Testament. Probably true today as well. Sexual immorality is usually the result of worshiping something else, elevating it to God's status. Israel has begun to worship the wrong gods. And so it says in verse 4, they mock the godly. 
says next that they are filled with lust. They've even descended to the point of child sacrifice in verse 5. We may be tempted to say, at least we're not that bad. Of course, we live in a country that's aborted over 63 million children since 1973, all in the name of sexual freedom and a woman's rights. Now, to clarify, I'm not anti-women. I don't think I am. I don't intend to be. Perhaps men and women would be more free, more free to be what God intended. If men weren't as sexually promiscuous, if men weren't modeling lifestyles and relationships that were supposedly free from the consequences of their actions. What if freedom from the consequences of our actions is not a good thing, even if it is possible, by the way? What if we need to rediscover the consequences, the glorious purpose of actions that are intended to stay within the bounds of God's glorious gift of marriage? What if we all need to repent of worshiping the false God of freedom, so-called freedom that allows you to live in ways that God never intended for us? That's not really freedom. That's actually bondage to the spirit of the age. But freedom from sin, freedom from sin that allows you to walk in the paths of righteousness and blessing that God intended, that is true freedom. It's what we should desire, and it's a path that's open to anyone who wants it, anyone who is contrite over their sin, lowly enough to surrender to God. But that, of course, doesn't describe the majority of people that Isaiah is talking about. Notice verse 6, he goes on. It says they pour out drink offerings and grain offerings to other God, and God interjects in verse 6, shall I relent for these things? Verses 7 and 8, there's more false worship upon the mountains, more sexual immorality. It was common in pagan worship. As a side note for you, it is staggering how many cults, even today, revolve around charismatic male leaders who want to take advantage of multiple women. Back to verse 9, it says there's a, there's a shift here, something new. It talks about them journeying to the king. That's the word melech in Hebrew. Some have asked, should this be Molech, the name of a Canaanite god? No, one commentator says. God is continuing to mix the metaphors of adultery and idolatry once again. You see, in the same way that Israel was so ready to seek out foreign gods and the sexual immorality that went with them, she also lusted for protection and peace from a foreign ungodly king. If you have walked through Isaiah with us, you might remember this. The first 30 to 40 chapters just hammered this home. Israel's salvation was in God alone. They were not supposed to flirt with foreign kingdoms and make an alliance with them for their safety. Does that mean that you can never make a military alliance? No, that's not the point. Why was it the point back then? Well, God was clear to Israel. Their idolatry had caused God to weaken them in hopes that they would cry out to him and return to him. And as he says, the remnant would return. They would repent. But to cry out to other nations, that would tempt them to worship other gods. That would tempt them to worship the strength of Egypt or Assyria or another. In the weakness of their own making, due, of course, to their own rebellion, God wanted them to seek the infinite, almighty God, not the finite, temporary powers who would eventually fade away. Israel was worshiping the wrong gods, and God was graciously trying to show her how empty they were. 
And so when God says in verse 10 that they grew weary, quote, with the length of their own way, but then, quote, found new life for your strength, that's not a compliment. He wants them to fear him, to draw near to him, but no, they have other plans. Their restlessness has driven them to a frenzy of activity instead of the fear of God. Look at verse 12 with me. It says there, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. That's probably divine sarcasm. Their so-called righteousness wasn't really right. Even if some of the outward actions might have looked right, it came from a heart that didn't really trust God like he wanted. This is the same thing he said many chapters ago. Isaiah 30, verse 15, God says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, and here's where the frenzy of activity comes in, you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You might be wondering as you read chapter 56 and 57, is God calling them back once again? Or is he finished with them? Those who've worshipped the wrong gods. You look, for example, at verse 13a where God says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But it's not where the verse ends, is it? If you finish verse 13, he also says, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Here's that glorious mountain showing up once again. Hope of the future. God is not done with his people. God still offers refuge. Maybe you've worshiped the idol of freedom and it didn't bring you the peace that you hoped for. Maybe you've worshipped the idol of pleasure. Maybe you've devoted yourself to something and you still don't have the peace you thought you'd have at the end of that tunnel. If I just finish this, if I just achieve this, if I just get that title, that recognition, if I get that much money. But what if God offered you refuge and safety regardless of what you've done? What if God saw you just as you are with all your fears and insecurities and your rebellion? And what if, he, what if he saw your ways and wanted to heal you and comfort you anyway? What if a people with the wrong leaders, worshiping the wrong gods, also had someone who could right every wrong? Because that's our final point this morning, the writer of all wrongs. See this in the final verses of Chapter 57, I posed this question earlier, who has God's peace? Who gets it? Who has God's peace? Is it beauty pageant contestants? Is it athletes and movie stars? Tom Brady, Tom Cruise? Is it the deserving, the high and mighty and the celebrated? Is the ones who grab life by the horns? The answer might surprise you. Look at verse 14. 
and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. This is John the Baptist type language here. Remove the obstacles, remove the roadblocks, prepare the way, make it straight. Let the king come and reign and make things right. It goes on, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He's high, he's mighty. Isaiah learned that well, didn't he? All the way back in chapter six, Isaiah knew that he did not deserve to be in the presence of a mighty and holy God, but he also saw that God graciously atoned for his sin. He purified him. He purified his lips, the very sin that separated him from a holy God. God, you could say, condescended to Isaiah in his time of need. Love came down to the lowly, to the one who said, woe is me, I am undone, I am unclean to the one who was contrite and remorseful over his sin. God revived his heart so that Isaiah could go and he could preach to the remnant, to the weary ones who wanted what the world could not offer them. Yes, God is high and holy and awesome and dreadful, but it also says that he who dwells in the heavens, he also dwells with you. If you have a heart that's broken over your sin, if you look at Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, it says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Those words come from a man who was guilty recently of adultery and murder, also known as King David. Of course, he was also a man who knew that he had blown it, that he had forfeited every right he might have had. And he knew that he served a gracious God who loved repentance, who loved those who turn from sin and turn to their Savior. Now, this is a pretty heavy passage, so I think it's time for another movie illustration. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the last Indiana Jones movie, because that one with aliens never happened. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Sean Connery, Indiana Jones' father. He's been shot by the Nazis. He's not dead, but he's dying. So Indiana Jones is to find the Holy Grail to heal his father. He has to pass through this labyrinth that's already killed at least one Nazi soldier. And he has a clue. He has a clue of how he can pass through it, but he doesn't understand the clue. This clue that came from the infamous grail diary that took him and his father years to research the clue. Only the penitent man shall pass, or only the penitent man will pass. He repeats it over and over. He's, he's terrified. He sees the dead bodies. He's confused, but then he starts to get it. Penitent. Only the penitent man will pass. The penitent man, he says, is humble before God. The penitent man is humble. He, he kneels before God and then the light bulb comes on just in time. He screams to himself, kneel. And he does. And this crazy razor contraption passes right over his head, which would have killed him 
if he hadn't kneeled. And so he lives. Only the penitent man shall pass. Only the penitent man shall live. Now, is Indiana Jones penitent, humble, repentant of his sin? It's questionable. And do we need to search high and low for clues so that we can search and find the Holy Grail and we can find eternal life? No, sir. Because when we are penitent, God finds us. Isn't that what verse 15 says? I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. When we're penitent or repentant, lowly, sorrowful over our sin, God finds us. He comes to dwell with us. He removes every obstacle. He comes from that high and holy place to dwell with us, to heal us, to revive our flagging spirits, to make all things right within us and around us. He is rightly angry over our sin, but he will not be angry forever, verse 16 says. Even in Israel's day when they did horrible things, when, when he struck them with suffering, when they kept on backsliding, even then he was not angry forever. Even though he knew all of their ways, all of their wandering tendencies, verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. He sees our ways. We don't have to trick him. We don't have to hide our sin. He sees it all, but he will heal us anyway. Verse 19 says as well, he is promising peace, peace to the far and to the near. Words that are repeated in the gospel promises of Ephesians 2.17. Peace to the Jews, peace to Gentiles and at the risk of oversimplification. Peace to those who grew up among God's people, hearing all of God's precious promises all their life. And peace to those who weren't born into the family of God until they were born again. To all who lower themselves in humility and contrition, who realize they are poor in spirit, poor in all the things that God requires. To them, God promises peace. Regardless of your poverty, your position, your positives or your negatives. That's who finds peace or better yet, peace finds them. Of course, verses 20 and 21, they say that this promise, it doesn't apply to the wicked, but who are the wicked? Those whose lives are characterized by wicked actions and who never repent, who never seek God's forgiveness. Am I wicked? Is that a question you're asking this morning? Because on one level, you are. We all are. We are all dead in our sins and transgressions, Ephesians 2 says. It says we were, and some of us still are. But whether you're wicked or not, it's not a question of arithmetic. Do my wicked deeds outweigh my good ones or vice versa? No, it's a question of refuge. Where is your refuge? Where is your place of safety and peace? Oh, there are thousand possible shelters, refuges in this world. But if your refuge is in God alone, in the grace that he offers to lowly and broken sinners, then you won't be called wicked anymore, not by him. You'll be called one of his children whom he promises to pity and protect 
regardless of your wicked past. Verse 18 says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Only the penitent man finds peace. So come, be found in him. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let his peace find you and let him heal you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your good in what you do is good. Your word, your gospel promise to us is good. It's better than anything else we can find anywhere. So be with us. Give us the ears to hear all of your precious promises. Give us soft, pliable hearts that we might, that we might not be stubborn and hard-hearted, but that we might be broken and ready to be put back together by our maker. Help us taste and see that all you do for us is good. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.